Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. And we've been saying together, um, this is part of God's story. So, one more time, this is part of God's story. Welcome, everyone. You can sit down. Thank you for standing for so long. Uh, And for those of you that are at home, for those of you that are here, we tried to figure out what to do with services today. Lots of churches in the area closed. Some of them kept running. Uh, And we thought about putting on more services just in case, but it seemed like we hit the the right amount of services for today. Uh, But if it was the wrong decision for you, then... um, then we, we apologize, man. Figuring out what to do is always an adventure, especially with Colorado. It got to about five o'clock yesterday afternoon and there was still no snow. Chick-fil-A was closed, which seemed unbelievable, but there, there was just, yeah, what do you do with something like this? So here we are in a room. You guys, I'm in the room, I'm relying on you a lot. Although I recorded in an empty room by myself for like four months uh, last year, and I got very used to laughing at my own jokes and everything. So if I have to do that here, it won't be the worst thing that has ever happened to us. Uh, And we'll get through it because this passage is wonderful. It's dense, and we're going to get into some of that and try and unpack some of the history. Uh, And so last week, we left Ruth and Naomi arriving in this town of Bethlehem. Yes, the same Bethlehem that Jesus. Jesus was born in just a few hundred years before, uh, and their arrival is greeted by surprise, by shock. Is this really the the Naomi that left us before? Uh, And yet now she has Ruth with her, and here they are back in Bethlehem. And as far as we know, we're going to pick it up the day afterwards. So here we go, chapter two. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So, all of the things that you see in your your Bible, if you you open it up, uh, you will see lots of numbers, some chapters, some verses. Those are not original, in case you're still catching up with that kind of thing. They weren't there until maybe a thousand years ago. Some people started to put them in to make the references easier. But when we say, oh, it's a new chapter, yes, that might mean something. It might be a logical break. But in actual fact, in terms of the actual text, there is no reason for it. The one chapter just feeds straight into the other. And sometimes it's true of whole books as well. So this just feeds straight in from the end of chapter one. We're told the barley harvest was happening. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz gets thrown into the story as this new character. We've got some development with Ruth and Naomi. We kind of know some of their backstory, some of who they are. And now we have Boaz. And if you think back to maybe week one, week two, week three, we we wrestled a little bit with, well, what kind of story is this? And, And who is its hero? Most stories, most narratives have some kind of protagonist and you expect that person to come. Yes, behind all of the the scripture, God is the ultimate hero who is working through the hearts and minds of people. But usually there's a character that comes to the forefront, especially in this time that this book is set in, that we're told is the time of Judges. The Judges is this period full of heroes, names that some of you who have been in church for a while might be familiar with, people like Gideon, people like Balak, these these heroes, Deborah, these people that ruled a nation even though they weren't kings and queens. This is a time of heroes, and so we expect a hero to come up to the forefront. And now we have Boaz, and we're told straight away the Hebrew word for him is, he is a child. He's a man of valor. 
Eschile, he's a man of valor, a man of standing, probably have his, has his own army of some kind, maybe fought in some battles. He, if anyone is going to be a hero, it would seem, here is a hero. Here is a hero to come to the forefront of the text. To use our language from last week, we talked about how Ruth, if anything, doesn't appear like a hero. She's a Moabite. She's a nobody. She can't belong. She's a foreigner, an outsider. Uh, To keep our Marvel sort of theme going along, this guy, he is Captain America. If, if, if Ruth is the, the Captain America before he has the injection stuff, before the procedure and all that kind of thing, well, Boaz is Captain America after all of that. If anything, he seems like the guy that should stand up and make some stuff happen. If anyone's going to affect change, he will be the guy that will affect change. He gets thrown into the text, but then, again, the text surprises us because it doesn't stay with Boaz. It skips straight back to Ruth and straight back to Naomi. And even though Boaz is mentioned, it's Naomi and Ruth in this moment that will come to prominence again just by her actions. So we move on. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Think about what that means for a second. I'd like you to picture in your mind a time that you spent in a foreign city a place that you hadn't been before. Think about what that felt like. Think about uh, how you experienced the disorientation of not knowing everything. Usually you get dumped in an airport and you have to make your way to a hotel or wherever you're staying. The airport is usually a considerable distance outside of town. It usually costs an inordinate amount of money to get there. It's ridiculous that it, it costs so much to get to wherever you're staying. And finally you arrive and maybe you've got a guide or maybe you know somebody or something like that. But generally, you're trying to find your way around and trying to access some local knowledge. It's disorientating. It's confusing. Everything about this text suggests to us that this is the day after they arrive. Ruth is in a town that she has never been in before, a place where she knows nobody except Naomi. And yet she's the one that is out looking for food. It reminds me of the first time I was in Haiti. I threw this picture in for you. Um, This is probably the shortest any of you have seen my hair, and you know, just can see why I keep it long. Um, And and I went to Haiti in February for the first time, about 2016, and I sent loads of pictures back to Laura because, well, we were living in Michigan, and it was February, and it seemed important to remind her that I was sitting by poolsides with pastors having great conversations about potential partnerships, which is what setting up a partnership looks like. I don't know what's in my mouth. It's like a stick in my mouth. It's not something else that shouldn't be there. It's just, just a stick, just chewing on something for no good reason. And I, I remember waking up that first morning and having that experience of, okay, everything's new. I'm out of place. I'm like a fish out of water. I can hear the noise of the city streets next to me. And fortunately for me, I can also hear the noise of the Haitian cook making us breakfast. And she made us a delightful breakfast. It was wonderful. We went down and ate it. But as I started to think about this, I started to think, what would have happened if she hadn't made breakfast? What would have happened if there is no food available, if nobody had turned up and there we are in a guest house, just like, I have to go and find food? Would I just wander out into the streets? My Creole is poor at best. I had no Haitian money. I'm, I'm just stuck trying to figure out, well, how do I go about eating? And the answer is, I don't know. This is the situation that Ruth finds herself in. I'm going to go out and find food. And she takes advantage of a law that she knows about by some means. We don't really know, but back in ancient history of Israel, there was a law that provided for people 
just like Ruth. Here it is, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Deep in the history of Israel, in their laws, there's a provision for people just like Ruth. Now, every nation of the ancient Near East had some kind of law like this, but the difference with Israel was this. They were the only nation that said for the foreigner too. Other nations provided for the poor, for, for, for the poor but, but Israel, not just for the poor, but for the outsider, the discluded, the, the person on the margins. Israel had provided for them, and somehow Ruth knows, and so she goes out to glean. What's fascinating to me is this. Think about these two people. Think about their different responses. I think this text shows something about where Naomi is psychologically now because this is her response. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Naomi's reply, it seems, in the text is intentionally short. It's just, okay, off you go. Go and make it happen. It seems to me like Naomi, with all her great character, with all her great, wonderful traits, has done what she is able to do so far in this story. She's got her and Ruth to Bethlehem. But in this moment, the next morning, it's like she's given up. It's like there's no more for her to give. Gleaning was not a rewarding process. It got you just enough to survive. The reality was you needed as many gleaners as you wanted to feed, and two of them could have gleaned far more than one. It's really essential that Naomi goes with her. She knows the land, she knows the people. She'll be looked on more favorably than Ruth because she's not an outsider. And yet she just says, go on, Ruth. Go and make it work. Go and bring us in enough to eat. And Ruth does. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, us Westerners in our 21st century, we don't really appreciate just how uh, awkward this process was or how much of an outcast this process made you feel. We have more food than we need. And even people that go out looking for food, people that live homeless lives, actually, food access isn't the biggest problem. The, the modern-day comparison might be someone who goes and picks up burgers from the trash in McDonald's. It might be someone who goes and collects aluminium can, can, cans of some kind and, and tries to donate them. But, but it's doable here. But in this world, it really was a challenge. And Ruth goes out and she puts herself in this place of risk from a number of factors. Think about this. There's the other gleaners. We were told the last couple of weeks that, that this land has been in famine for years, maybe close to a decade. There has been no food, and finally, for the first time, there is now a harvest. And there's these people going out looking for what's left. The probability is they don't take favorably to another person turning up looking for food. They certainly don't look favorably on a foreigner coming in and looking for food, even though the law is designed for the poor and the foreigner. Ruth is an outsider, and she's another mouth. She's another person. So Ruth is in danger from these other gleaners that are out looking for food. She's a single, unprotected, foreign woman. She's in danger from the other workers, the people that, that the owner of the field will employ. These are manual workers that make just a small amount in grain for every long, hot day they work. 
They are oppressed, looked down on by the rich landowners. And what do you find so often in society when someone feels oppressed and looked down on? They usually find someone else lower down on the chain than them to look down on in turn. This is exactly the risk that Ruth faces. How will the other workers treat her? She's in danger from these people that are somewhere in the middle class of society, but might take advantage of her having nobody to protect her. And then finally, she's in danger from the owner himself. We know that Boaz is a child, and we know that she ends up in Boaz's field, but she doesn't know that. And often, you see, in society, there's a propensity for rich people to take advantage of people that aren't as fortunate as them. Ruth faces risks, multiple risks, multiple reasons that she should be scared, should be nervous, multiple risks that Naomi shouldn't let her go by herself. And yet, she does. And then we read this. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It's that, that phrase, as it turned out, it's like, by happenstance, it just so happened to be that she, and it's the sort of phrase that we might read in many sort of romantic stories that throw two people together. Just by coincidence, this story happened to bring these two wonderful people together. In Hebrew, it's exactly the same language as we might use in English. And so maybe our continued question that we've wrestled with over multiple weeks is, where is this story going? It reads a little bit like a romance novel, but, but we generally know, if we've been reading the Bible for a while, that usually there's an undercurrent, there's a bigger story that's sort of shaping that one. And the Bible is very comfortable, it seems, or most of the writers of the Bible are very comfortable with doing multiple things at the same time. Yes, there will be this story of romance that starts to occur, but that doesn't change the fact that there's something deep and rich happening too. So let's see where it keeps going. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab, to Naomi, from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and she has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. This text's main function here right now is to, to move the story on a little bit. It tells us something about Ruth's character. She has constantly been working, constantly been making an effort to provide, but it tells us something about Boaz too. There's something about Ruth that he notices. There's something about her that gathers his attention. Maybe she just looks different. Maybe she dresses different to the other people. Maybe she's prettier than a lot of the other people that are there. She fits maybe a different demographic, but something to him stands out. And then this fascinating conversation occurs. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. The first thing Boaz gives her is safety. He promises her that she'll be okay. She's going to be in a place where no one will harm her. That's a good thing. That's a first step in the story. But then he does something else that I just find fascinating. Boaz is going to start to nudge Ruth's story along. Because remember what we talked about last week. Ruth comes to Bethlehem 
simply as baggage. When Naomi arrives, she says, I am empty. I have nothing. There is nothing in my life that has any value. And Ruth is classed as that nothing. In the society she, she is in, she's an outsider. She's a nobody. And Boaz is going to slowly start to nudge Ruth's story from baggage to actually belonging. He's going to start to nudge her sense of identity and who she is and a sense of who am I as a person. He's going to start to move all of that and look at this wonderful phrase that he's going to start to share with her as, as she reveals her own sense of identity. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Ruth knows who she is. She knows she's an outsider. She knows she doesn't belong. She knows that she's just receiving whatever is left over. And Boaz makes this statement that is wonderful. I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. All of the things that we said in week one and week two and week three that made it just... It makes sense that, that, that Ruth would have just gone home. All of the things that we pointed out that said, there's no reason for you to continue on this journey. There's no reason for you to stay with Naomi. The best decision is just to go back to Moab. All of those things that we observed, Boaz notices as well. His statement is, is one of surprise. I have heard of these wonderful things you have done. You outsider, you foreigner of whom we expected nothing. And then this beautiful phrase, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you, you may not have a particular sense of, of this identity that this nation Israel had. It was a protected identity. They were different. They were marked out special people in their own eyes and in the eyes of the writers of the biblical text. The idea that Ruth would be welcomed into that is new. It's groundbreaking. She is an outsider, and the, the place for outsiders was limited at best. And Boaz starts to articulate this idea that just, ah, you have been welcomed in. You are in a place of refuge. You came looking for shelter. You came looking for acceptance. You came looking for a new story, a new narrative, and, and you are finding it here. You are finding a place to belong. This story, as we look next week and the week after, will nudge Ruth along in this journey. She is in a place of where she can belong. And Ruth's response, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. This will be a wrestling point for Ruth throughout the rest of this journey. Does she really belong? Is she really included? And now, this is where I think that the story gets fascinating. Because Boaz will start to pay attention to Ruth in a way that can't do anything other than stand out. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered us some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. 
Boaz treats Ruth in a way that you would never treat a gleaner. He invites her to come and sit with them. He invites her to become part of his party. And then he starts to tell the men, well, actually, don't, don't accidentally leave stuff. Intentionally leave stuff. Don't make her rely on just the little bits of grain that fell off. Actually, drop whole sheaths, in, sheaves intentionally. Go the extra mile. Go beyond. Be generous with her. Provide for her in a way that you wouldn't usually provide for another gleaner. As I read Boaz and Ruth in this interaction, it reminds me of my first experience meeting my wife, Laura. So we met, as I've told you before, in Bulgaria, and we managed to find this picture of the hotel that we met in. If it looks like a communist block 1970s building, that's because it is a 1970s communist block building. But the fun part for us was that because there were all the pictures of the hotel online, we were able to show our kids the very places that we met. We said, oh, this is the room that we met in. And I walked in the door over on the far side, and she was sat somewhere at the back of the hall. And there was a load of other people there too. And, and this was the place that we had our first conversations. We never got to spend time, just the two of us that weekend, but we were in a group and, and we were in church together. So when I wasn't preaching, we wrote each other notes and it asked all the important questions that you might ask uh, in a Christian relationship. Who's you, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis book? And who's your favorite secular band? Or Switchfoot? And, uh, and just those different things that you, you might ask people about the, the, you know, that you're interested in a relationship with. And I thought that I was oh so careful and oh so circumspect. I thought that nobody could possibly notice that I was interested in this American girl that I was sat by in church. It was just a common, casual acquaintance. And then I remember chatting to a friend that had been on the trip with me, and, and to be fair to her, she's a very sharp person. She's the sort of person that if you play any kind of guessing game with, she's always wonderful at them. She just reads people very, very well. And I remember we, the conversation turned to this American group that we'd met while we were there. And I remember Charlotte looking at me, and she kind of had this twinkle in her eye. And she said, Alex, she's very pretty. And it was that moment that I knew that everything, every bit of attention that I had given her had been observed by somebody. I hadn't been nearly as careful as I thought. Boaz's attention to Ruth is in the same category. His attention is far too marked to be missed by anybody. He is constantly giving her more than she deserves, offering a place that she doesn't deserve. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. What Ruth is now doing is not gleaning. It's not in the same category. He essentially makes her a harvester. She is harvesting his grain for her and for Naomi. He gives her a position as a foreigner she could never have expected to get. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, something a gleaner wouldn't usually get to do because you're just picking up bits of grain, and it amounted to about an effort. Now, to us, again, Westerners, 21st century, this doesn't really stand out. We don't really know what an effort is, but if you read maybe in the text you have in front of it, I'll tell you at the bottom, this is about 30 pounds. Think about how much that might be, those huge big bags of rice that you get at Costco. They're about 20 pounds. So this is a little bit more than that. This is a considerable amount of grain to collect in a day. And then think about this. The average worker in a harvest 
a category above Ruth, someone more important, someone with more social standing, the average harvester received about that for a day's work. This is about a pound of quick grits that I took from the food pantry. They did not harvest quick grits. Grits were not popular in uh, ancient Near East Israel, as far as I know. Uh, But it just gives you a sense of the size that you're talking about. A whole day's labor out in the sun, doing work for somebody else. This is your reward. And along comes Ruth, outsider, foreigner, nobody, baggage, someone who's just tagged along with a local who's come back into town after many years, someone who left looking for food and who's come back looking for food. And this person receives 30 times more than a worker in the harvest. The the amount is almost embarrassing. Do you remember, think back to high school. For some of you, it's a while ago. For some of you, it's more recently. But remember those sort of somewhat awkward encounters where you would offer to walk someone to class and it was well out of the direction that you were actually going or you would offer someone a ride and it actually took you the opposite direction to home. All of those different things. This is almost the, the level that we're talking about with Boaz. It's almost so awkward that he has to offer to carry it home for her. For her to take a journey back home carrying 30 pounds of grain, that's significant. The story is embarrassing by the, because of the over generosity of Boaz. He does far more than could be expected. We talked about the gleaning laws that were there to provide enough. Boaz does more than enough. It seems like in Boaz's thinking, there is the law, and then there is more. There's this extra thing that he decides to do, extra thing, extra way that he decides to care for Ruth, and in turn, for Naomi. Now, one explanation could be he's in love with her, One explanation could be he thinks she's very attractive, he thinks that this relationship could go somewhere, but I'm not sure that that fits all the facts. Somewhere, this story is about reciprocal generosity. It's about generosity that you show someone that builds because you then show it in turn to somebody else. Somewhere, there's this idea that there's the law that provides just stability. It makes sure that society can function. But it seems like somewhere in Israel, there's this idea that generosity beyond that builds a culture that people want to live in. Next passage, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Look what Boaz's generosity does. Unbeknown to him, his generosity awakes Naomi from her slump. At the start of the chapter, it's just this single word, single sentence reply. Go ahead, my daughter. Go and do what you can. Maybe we'll starve anyway. Go and try and provide enough for two of us, even though it really takes two of us to provide for two of us. And then Ruth comes back with enough grain to start a business. She could actually start selling the amount of grain that she's getting from Boaz on the streets and make money. For Naomi, there's this moment of, where did you go? Where did you find this? How is this even possible? Who would be so generous to somebody like you? Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Interesting that she didn't mention this before. 
in the town that they have come to live, there is somebody who she considers a close relative, somebody who could be responsible for caring for them under the Israelite law that they are following. And Naomi didn't mention it. She's become so hopeless that she can't even think of, oh, there's this person that could actually be of use to us. He's a significant landowner. He has plenty of resources. We could go to him, and there could be some way that he could provide for us. Didn't mention it. Just slipped her mind. And now in this moment, Boaz's generosity awakens this idea, of course, Boaz. Of course we should have gone to Boaz. Of course Boaz will provide for us. Suddenly Naomi is suddenly, she's springing back to life because of Boaz's generosity. And this is the first time in this chapter that this wonderful Hebrew word that the whole book is centered on is mentioned. This is this idea of hesed. Faithfulness, kindness, and favor spelt in the correct English manner, I would just point out, with a U as it should be. This word is central to the whole of the book, and yet it's only mentioned three times. It doesn't come up all the time, but everything about the book is hesed. Ruth shows hesed, faithfulness, kindness to Naomi by taking the journey with her. Boaz shows hesed and kindness to Ruth and to Naomi. There'll be hesed in the future chapters that we'll look at, but all of the book is centered around this idea, God's faithfulness, his generosity, his care, is, is what undergirds the whole book. And it's revealed in the characters that we see. Do you remember we said, at the start of this whole book, there is no supernatural in Ruth. There is no point in this book where God steps in and does something spectacular out of nowhere. The spectacular is done by everyday people. But everyday people who have captured what God's heart is and who he is and what he wants for his nation and what he wants, I would suggest, for you and I and this world today. Somewhere this idea resonates in the hearts of these people and, and they live it out in this chapter at least, primarily through deep generosity. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Again, all information that she may well have conveyed at the start of the book, but now she's engaged. And finally, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Not just the barley harvest, the next one as well. Ruth receives what is essentially an income from Boaz that she could not possibly have hoped to receive when she started out on this journey. So here's a question for us. How do we read and receive this story? Yes, there's loads of details that we just looked at there. There's loads of important cultural history things. We get to see the joy of the book and God at work and what it means for the ultimate story, but, but what does it mean for you and I today? So, a couple of things. I would say that this whole scene centers around Boaz compelling generosity centers around a character that doesn't just do enough, but that does more than enough. Doesn't center around just a character that follows the law, but sees there's this opportunity for something more. And think about how Boaz's generosity is transformative. Yes, it's transformative for Ruth. She gets to eat. She gets provided for. Yes, it's transformative for Naomi. But I also suggest that it's transformative for Boaz as well. Unbeknown to him, his whole story is going to change because of the ludicrous 
generosity that he displays. And this is what I find fascinating. I would say that Boaz demonstrates Jesus-like generosity. One of the wonderful things about the, the, the biblical writers, these different authors that come together to write these 66 books, is the way that this, these themes seem to fit in, these patterns seem to flow. And, and we sometimes have this idea, maybe this is some of your thinking, and, and I would encourage you to, to rethink some of this. We tend to have this idea, especially if we're kind of new to faith, that there's the Old Testament where God is kind of grumpy and he's kind of uh, angry and distant and, and he's not the same as Jesus. And then there's the New Testament where everything is better and, and God is no longer grumpy and, and he's now kind or generous and all those different sort of separations that we have of the two. And yet constantly when you read the Old Testament, you find ways that God's heart is revealed in the same way as Jesus will later reveal it to a greater degree. It seems hidden in the text. God's character is there all along. In this chapter, we see it through Boaz, who doesn't just embrace the law, but will give something more. And think about how Boaz's generosity fits in with these passages. These are a couple of things that Jesus said to his followers. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew chapter 5. How about Luke chapter 6, 38? Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In Jesus' thinking, generosity wasn't something that was governed by rules. It was given by a heart that said, I would like to constantly give out of what I have and share it with others. It's not about keeping it. It's about releasing it. It's not about it staying with me. It's about it going to thee. It's how do I get stuff out and share it with other people? Boaz demonstrates Jesus-like generosity that is transformative for more than one person in the narrative. And I would suggest just one of the life lessons, whether you're following Jesus or not, is that we can take is actually generosity is a thing that changes us too. Figuring out a way that you can be generous changes not just your life, but the lives of people around you. So a couple of questions to ponder. How do you receive generosity? How do you show generosity? In my experience, most people are more comfortable with the one than the other. There's lots of us that love to give but find it hard to receive. There's lots of us that love to receive but find it hard to give. It took me years to learn to receive. Just in a pastoral role, regularly people would come to me and they would give some kind of gift or they would ask me, do I want to go stay in their cabin or different things like that? And, and for years it was this awkward, well, I'm not really sure that I should say yes to that. But it took me a long time to recognize that actually for some people, the joy of giving was a huge thing. It also took me some time to learn that generosity flowing outwards from me was important, not just for other people, but for me as well. I think we wrestle with these two different things to different degrees. You may be great at giving and yet struggle to receive. You may be great at receiving and yet struggle to give. 
What I think we see in this passage is, is this idea that generosity is a thing that should build, on, uh, build and build and build and build, and, and it becomes this wonderful reciprocal thing that changes the world around us. That's true whether you're following Jesus or not. Giving out changes you too. But then I think there's another thing, a deeper meaning to Ruth that I think I'd love us to land up. Boaz demonstrates Jesus-like generosity that can be seen as a picture of grace. The God of the New Testament and the Old Testament is eternally generous. He gives and he gives and he gives. And the greatest gift he offers is himself. You can see within Boaz and Ruth's story this picture of grace because Ruth doesn't deserve the favor that she is shown shown by Boaz. He does give more than the law requires. The, The most she can expect when she arrives is enough to survive. And yet he gives her enough to start a small business. And and I love the picture of grace that we can see in this. And it reminds me of some other stories of grace that I've just seen in just different places. I, I took a group of students to Romania a few years ago. And I remember on the way back, we stopped over in London and I gave these students one specific instruction. Don't take your passports into the city. Leave them in the hotel where they're safe. We'll have them locked up, just don't take them with you. Now, one of the students decided that my rules were stupid or whatever and that they were going to do their own thing. And so she went off into the city with her passport. And apparently during the course of the day, it was stolen or she lost it or whatever else may have happened. And so I'm left with this 16-year-old girl who has no way of getting back to America right now. And I have to figure out a way to get her home. So I take her to the airport with the rest of the students. They get on their flight, and they go off on their way, and I'm left with Allison and trying to figure out what to do with her. So we call the American consular, and someone comes over, and they go through all the details, and they are able to look up in a system and say, oh, you do have a passport. We're going to let you go home. It's going to be okay. Again, minimum baseline. But we're making this journey that's quite extensive. We're supposed to go from the UK to France to Paris. Then we're supposed to go over to Toronto. Then we're supposed to drive from Toronto to Detroit. We're crossing about three different borders. We're going through all of this rigmarole. And and the guy looks at Allison and he just says, so I can get you on a flight here, but there's no way you're going to get through all of those border crossings without someone stopping you. So I'm just going to rebook you on a flight that just goes straight to Detroit. All of these students that did the right thing, all of these students that were good, all of these students that left their passport in the hotel, they're on a flight from London to to Paris, Paris to Toronto. They're driving from Toronto to Detroit. They've got this 24-hour journey ahead of them. And suddenly, Alison is booked on a flight that goes straight from London, straight to Detroit. And if that wasn't enough, As she gets on the flight, she starts chatting to the stewardess on the plane and starts revealing just all that she's been through and the the cost, and she's now traveling alone, and this has just been a difficult time, and she's just a little bit overwhelmed. And the stewardess looks at her and says, do you know what? Why don't you come and sit up in first class here with us, and, and we'll take care of you and make sure that you just get to where you need to go. 
And so Alison finds herself not on a coach flight from London to Paris. And let me say this, I'd never booked us on good airlines, so it was not a luxury wherever you were in coach. And suddenly she finds herself flying Delta first class from London to Detroit through no merit of her own. Simply a picture of grace. The story of Ruth is simply a picture of grace. Whatever Ruth has done by journeying with Naomi, it doesn't entitle her to all of the things that she receives. And it seems like grace is favor to those who have no right to expect it. Sometimes I spell favor incorrectly. There is this journey that Ruth is on that is simply about goodness. Boaz demonstrates goodness to her when she doesn't deserve it. And it seems that when he does that, he captures this picture of who God is and what he does in Jesus. Grace is favor to those who do not deserve it. It comes on the house. There are no strings attached, simply free of charge. We see in Boaz's life, we see a picture of what generosity can look like. Generosity is a wonderful thing. My encouragement to each of us is to go out and find ways to be generous. Find a way to give 10% of your income somewhere. Don't hold it in. I'm not saying you should give it all to South. I'm saying that there, are, there is a good principle, a good practice by saying, I'm going to live on 90% of what comes in, and I'm going to send 10% out somewhere. There's something about that that you'll find transformative in other people's lives, but you'll find it transformative for you too. Find practices, things that you love. Find organizations that you're passionate about and, and give and find a way to make the world a different place. But each of us, somewhere, has to learn to receive. We have to learn that God's goodness comes looking for us and we don't deserve it. So I'm going to invite Aaron uh, and the team to come back up on stage and we're going to Close this out with a moment of prayer. A moment of recognition of the goodness that God gives in Jesus. The fact that we are deeply loved. That in his death and resurrection, he gave the greatest gift they could, he could possibly give. He gave himself. And whether you're at home, online, or whether you're here and you're not at the moment, walking in relationship with Jesus, this is a moment of invite into that, to receive God's generosity. Each of us is like Alison, like Ruth. We are students in a foreign city that have carelessly taken our passport where it shouldn't have gone. And yet God comes to us with first-class tickets, with generosity, with care. And we get to receive that with joy. God, I thank you for your endless goodness to us. Thank you that in the midst of a snowstorm, we can have community together. And that you can call us one people, whether we're at home or here in person. God, may we take a moment to contemplate your deep, generous love for us. Your hesed love. May we not try and earn it. May we simply accept it. We are loved by you. For those of us that feel far away, may you draw us in with that grace. 
May you change our story, change what we believe about ourselves. For those of us that are close, may we celebrate it and share it with others. The good news that you love the world. For those of us that have been given resources, may we take care to send out, to give out, to let it flow out, to not hoard, to not keep, not control, but to trust that you've given enough and that we get to share it beyond us. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us today. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.